After being gone two weeks, I often feel uh, pretty rusty to come back. It's like I, I sort of feel like I forget about how I'm supposed to do this. Um, it's always the same, no matter how many years. Um, I want to remind you, church, this is a time where in two weeks we're going to have a baptism. And some of you have been thinking about being baptized. And uh, if, you, if you're thinking about it, uh, I need to know and we need to schedule a time to get together and uh, talk about it. Um, we believe that uh, baptism is for those who are followers of Christ. Um, I was baptized as an infant because my parents thought that was the best thing they could do for me. Uh, that's what you know, their church uh, taught them. Uh, but I didn't become a follower of Christ until I was 25. And uh, when I became a follower of Christ, I began to understand uh, what Jesus intended. And I was baptized as a new follower of Christ at that time. And uh, because I had understood uh, that I was a sinner and that Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for my sins, there was no other way that I could have salvation but by believing in Jesus, and that changed my life. And here I am today. So whether that's good or bad, that I am here. Uh, Bridge Kids, you are dismissed. Thank you very much. So, by the way, did you know that in 2011, there was a Sports Illustrated article that reported home field advantage is not a myth? Maybe some of you remember that. Uh, it's indisputable that home field advantage is real across all sports and at all levels from Japanese baseball to Brazilian soccer to the NFL, and that hosting teams win more often than not. The article gives a wealth of evidence that disputes most common theories behind home, te home team advantage. You know, like, what do you think home team advantage is about? And there's a whole number of theories. And a number of statistics were taken, such as pitch velocity in baseball, free throw shooting percentage in basketball. It was discovered over a 20-year period that home teams and visiting teams average 75.9% each on field, uh, free throw percentage. They calculated into the research the rigors of travel for the visiting team and the home team's familiar, familiarity with their field or rink or their court. So, what do they find out? What makes the difference? The article concluded that officials' bias is the most significant contribution for home field advantage. Booing does make a difference. When games are close, there is a tendency for officials to call fewer fouls or penalties on the home team. Larger and louder fans really do influence calls from the officials. Um, the refs often do this without thinking, unconsciously. They respond to the crowd seeking to avoid angry disapproval. The conclusion is officials' people-pleasing response can have an impact on the final results of a game or contest. So, question for us. Do crowds influence us in our decision? Do we submit at times to people-pleasing? 
The Apostle Peter faced a difficult crowd and chose to give in under pressure. And we're going to see that in our passage this morning in Luke uh, chapter 22. I invite you to turn there. It's on page 736, if you grabbed a Bible when we came in uh, today. Luke chapter 22. And by the way, we do plan to land the plane and finish the Gospel of Luke in August. So it's been a long time coming, but we are making it. I'm going to start with uh, Luke chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 54. Uh, Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight, and she looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And he, Peter, went outside and he wept bitterly. So we're going to start and we're going to see how Jesus is failed by his friend. Failed by a friend, verses 54 through 62. It is very late. You know, we haven't looked at this passage for a few weeks. It's very late. It's been a long evening. Uh, They came together early, and Jesus washed the disciples' feet in the upper room. They sat down and celebrated Jesus' last Passover, and he instituted uh, something new. We call it communion, and we're going to share that today, and um, sometimes called the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. And he instituted a new covenant, a new covenant that would be in his blood. And he gave them this uh, new practice to share this meal, to remember him. Didn't have a lot of significance to them. They um, went out after that and they went to the Mount of Olives and there they got together for a prayer meeting and Jesus sat them aside and said, I want you to pray. And then he went forward of a little bit further, and he got alone, and he poured out his heart to God. And he prayed for God's will to be done, and if possible, that this could be removed. And he prayed for strength to do God's will. Then he was arrested. He was betrayed by Judas. He's arrested, and that's where we pick it up in verse 54. And we see the first denial. Then seizing him, so the guard sees him, the guards along there, it's with the high priest, it's some of the uh, Pharisees, it's uh, some uh, temple police. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. So, you know, I can't, I can't stress the long night of this. How tiring and exhausting it would have been Whether you were Peter or whether you were Jesus, obviously it impacted Jesus way more. And the temperature is dropping and it's getting colder. 
And they took him to the house of the high priest. Who's the high priest? Well, it's Caiaphas, but well, it's Annas. And John reports they go to the house of Annas, who was the former high priest, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. And there is a large house, and um, it's kind of like a compound, and there were rooms all around a courtyard that was open, open air, and then there would be a gate to get in. And so Peter followed at a distance. Um, now, we can sort of make fun of Peter for following at a distance, like, that's your problem, you got too far from Jesus. Maybe, but you know what? There's no other disciples here. We believe John is with him because of the gospel of John, because somebody has to let Peter into the courtyard. The gate has to be open. And apparently, John is the one who knows the high priest. So there's another disciple with Peter, and he's going to get into the courtyard. But let's give Peter some credit. He followed at a distance, but that was risky. Remember, he's the one who said, I'm going to die with you, Jesus. I'll go to prison with you. I'm on your team. I am not going to let you down. And so, you know, his, his Savior is, he doesn't know he's going to be Savior yet. His Lord is arrested, and he's following, and he doesn't know what to do. Give him some credit for following. And verse 55, and when uh, some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, they sat down together, and Peter sat down with them. And this is going to be a long night. We get to, the way Luke gives the story, it just goes bang, bang, bang. It didn't happen that way. It was over a period of time. I would take it over a period of hours of the night where Peter is here, and he's, he's in the courtyard, and... and this is, the, this is the high priest's home, and those people support the high priest. And there are probably guards nearby. Some of them have left. And there are servants there that communicate and report things. And Peter is fearful. And they sat down with Peter. Peter sat down, and a servant girl saw him. And there in the firelight, she looked closely at him. You know, she's staring. It's dark. But she sees his face in the firelight, and she recognizes him, and it scares Peter to death. And she says, this man was with him. And she referred to Peter being with Jesus. And Peter was hoping to remain incognito, but he was discovered, and he's embarrassed, and he is very fearful. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. He denies he knows Jesus. The very thing he said he would not do. Um, earlier, he promised, Jesus, I'll, I'll die with you. Um, John chapter 18, I meant to pull this up earlier, verses 12 through 14, gives us a little more information about the environment here. The detachment of soldiers uh, with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. So this is John's version of the, what happened at the arrest and what happens next. They bound him. They brought him first to Annas. Luke doesn't tell us who this is, but it's Annas. He is considered one of the high priests. There's only supposed to be one. Who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Next slide. Caiaphas was the one who advised Jewish leaders 
that it would be good if one man died for the people. He gave a prophecy there because there was a man who was going to die for the people, and he's going to die for all people, for all time, forever. And the problem with Caiaphas is he, his opinion is based on political expediency, okay? Second denial, verse 58, a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. So I just remind you, the evening was long. This just didn't happen right away. Luke gives a short capsule of events. If you look at all the Gospels, it's a complicated story. They're put together. Luke just picks certain ones. He wants to make it simple. And, you know, we, the way our approach to news is we want every fact in the order it came. The Oriental mind, the, the first century uh, ancient Near Eastern mind didn't worry about all those things like we do. And he's reporting the facts, but he didn't report every detail. Wasn't part of his story. So someone says, you're one of them. He says, man, I am not. Now, this is going to be a long night. I think I said that, right? There are going to be three religious trials or hearings or events where they're going to evaluate Jesus. Three. There are going to be three civil hearings or trials where a final decision will be made by Pilate. It's going to be a long night. This is the first part of the night. Um, third denial, verses 59 through 60. About an hour later, another uh, asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Everybody knows that. Listen to the way he talks. He's got an accent. He's not from here. This is Jerusalem. These are educated people here. Peter is a fisherman. He sounds a little country to the people in Jerusalem. I'm not against country. But they could just tell, Peter, you're not from here. Peter replied, I don't know what you're talking about. By the way, people say that about me, too. They say, you're from the south, aren't you? Well, no, I'm from Iowa. Well, that's south of Minnesota and south of Wisconsin, mostly. And my grandfather came from Missouri, and I think a lot of our people... A lot of our family talks like my grandfather. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Bingo. The sign that Jesus had referred to is very crystal clear. And the failure is recognized in verse 61 through 62. Peter was caught up under pressure. I sympathize with him. I would have done the same thing. I don't think I would have been very courageous in Peter's shoes or sandals. Uh, he was ruled by fear. He was afraid of being arrested. Even the, the servant girl who came up to him, he was fearful. You know, what... One of the classic questions, you know, he's afraid of being arrested. One of the classic questions for us is, could you be arrested for being a follower of Christ? You've probably heard that in different forms. Peter was known to be a follower of Jesus, and they identified him. Can you be 
identified as a follower of Christ? Would you be found guilty if you were charged to be? You're one of them. You're with him. Luke chapter 22, verses 61 through 62, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and Peter is dead. Jesus is somewhere close enough. Peter is in the courtyard. Jesus has to be somewhere with the officials under guard where Jesus is able to see what just happened. And he looks straight at Peter. Peter recognizes that Jesus knows him better than he knows himself. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crowed today, you will disown me three times. Peter painfully remembered. He can't believe he just did this. He didn't see it coming. He never thought once he would ever cave under pressure for Jesus. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. He is broken. He is weak. And maybe that's where he needed to be all along. He can't handle life's challenges without Jesus' help. He was out there all by himself and he couldn't handle it. So here's a lesson for us. Failure in prayer leads to failure in ministry. Failure in prayer leads to failure in ministry. Now, on that particular night, Jesus spent time getting ready for the challenges that he was going to face. And he just prayed his heart out. Um, Sweat like drops of blood, the scripture says. And he prayed that he, he would have what it takes to do God's will on this night. And he asked his disciples to pray, specifically Peter, James, and John. Um, and if you recall, the disciples fell asleep. Peter's not ready. Peter's not equipped. Peter does not have the strength. He was not strong in prayer. He is relying on his own strength and his own commitment. So Peter failed Jesus, and he failed him big time. Do you think that Peter learned from this? And probably most of you know the story, and he did. He learned much. question for us is, how do we handle failure? How do we handle failure? Do we quit? Uh, Do we withdraw from people? Do we hide? Uh, Do we evaluate? How how did this happen? What should I have done? Is there something I should have done better? Uh, Do you seek to make correction after failure? Do you own your failure? Do you blame others? And I know there's multiple ways and situations that are all different. But in Peter's case, he owned his failure he humbled himself. He, what we would call, he repented. He turned to God for help and forgiveness. And yes, Jesus is going to restore him. Um, this is why Peter is different than Judas. 
Judas betrayed him. He never turned back to God. He never repented. We see that Peter is going to be a changed man. I think you know the story. Most of you do. In Acts chapter 2, God sends the Holy Spirit, and the church has its beginning. And they are in Jerusalem. This is where Jesus was crucified. This is enemy territory, and Peter is going to stand up, and he's going to preach. And he's going to proclaim that Jesus is the way to God. And he's going to tell the Jewish people, the Jewish religious leaders in Israel, that they need to repent and turn to God because they have gotten it wrong. Acts chapter 4, we see Peter. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what's going to make all the difference for Peter. He's empowered by God's Holy Spirit. He's relying on God's strength. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. He's speaking to the Sanhedrin, the, the highest ruling group in Israel. If we are being called to account today for the act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. Next slide. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you healed. Jesus did it. That's his point. The stone, Jesus is the stone, you builders. He's talking to the Sanhedrin, talking to the religious leaders. The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, new building. It's going to be the church. It's a new temple of God, and Jesus is the cornerstone. Everything's founded on that. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, this is a different Peter. He has courage. He's not fearful. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is Peter now. He's guilty of being with Jesus. Clearly identifiable who he's been with. And 3,000 people are going to come to faith as a result. Uh, they already have, Acts chapter 2. And here is the church on the move. And Peter is boldly proclaiming. Um, and Peter is a great model to study in handling failure and overcoming fear. And one of the big things about failure, he just owned it, and it was sin for him, and he confessed his sin, and um, he submitted himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ and desired to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he walked forward. Now, not all failure necessarily is sinful. But when it comes to our spiritual lives and we fail God, that's the way to navigate, is to own your own mistakes and sin. Secondly, Jesus is abused by his captors, verses 63 through 65. The night continues. Uh, Jesus spoke these words earlier. 
Every day, so chapter 22, verse 53, listen to this. Every day I was with you in the temple courts, he's talking to the leaders, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. This is a night of darkness, and darkness reigns. And we see Jesus physically abused in verse 63. The, man, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. Now, Luke's only going to mention briefly what Jesus endured. The guards were making fun of Jesus. They were telling jokes. They began to beat him, probably about the head, probably with their fists. Maybe they used clubs. could have done anything. It was a continuous kind of thing, and Luke just says it in a sentence. Verses 64 and 65, he's verbally abused. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. They played a game with Jesus. He was their prisoner, and there were many of them. And they play a game because this helped to make their jobs more fun. They blindfolded him, and then they hit him. Okay, Jesus, you're a prophet. You you. You go around saying things that are going to happen. Okay, you, if you're a prophet, then you know who's hitting you. And they just wanted him to guess. And they could just see they were testing him, and this was, uh, this was nonsense. He's not a prophet. Um. I think a lesson for us is that there, there have always been people critical and abusive with Jesus. Think about that. This is the first century. There Jesus was. We often think if we could go back to Bible times and if we could see Jesus, if we could see the apostles, we would do things differently. We would see God's power and we would overcome. And, you know, people were just ordinary then, just like they're ordinary today. And not everybody is interested in following Jesus. And there were people with hard hearts in the first century, and there are people today with hard hearts, and you know that. Sometimes you get discouraged by that. I just want you to know that it's normal. Yes, we want to pray for people. Yes, we want to share the gospel with people. Yes, we want as many people come to faith in Jesus Christ as possible. But we ought not get worried as if somehow we're not doing something that's popular. That somehow we have to be connected to something that seems great to other people. Because not everybody is going to think Jesus is great. Okay, third one, last section. Um, abused by religious leaders. And we see the meeting, verse 66. Luke skims through the long night to the final phase, which is the religious trial. And all along, the leaders have been gathering information. For a couple of years, they've been trying. They, they sent spies out when Jesus was up in Galilee. And they, they, if you recall, there were leaders who came and they questioned him, not because they wanted more information or they wanted truth. It's because they were trying to sort of trick him and sort of prove that he was guilty of something. And so 
they are uh, focused on this night. They've arrested him. They've taken a super big risk in arresting him because he's a very popular person. And uh, they, they have been bringing in people who are witnesses, who heard him teach, and they still don't have a witness to nail the, sh- the case shut. They don't have the proof that they've been searching for. They've had witnesses, and some of them say this, and it's this, and they have people with conflicting accounts, and they just can't get a solid case against Jesus. Jesus has been up all night, and he's bruised, and he's beaten, and he's bleeding. Verse 66, at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. This was highly unusual. Everybody has been up all night making a case against Jesus. Now it's daylight. One of the things, you know, none of this is legal according to their own rules of the first century. But you can't pronounce any, anybody guilty during the night. You have to have a verdict during the day. So here they are, first thing in the morning, they got everybody. Some of those people have been up all night. Some of the people they had to get out of bed to get there for this meeting. And they are going to nail Jesus now. Uh, First question, verse 67, if you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. So Messiah means anointed one. He's the promised one of the Old Testament. The Hebrew idea is Messiah or Mashiach. The Greek or New Testament idea is Christ or Christos. And so Christ and Messiah are the same, and it's a title, okay? Okay. Jesus, are you this anointed one promised in the Old Testament that God's people have been waiting for for hundreds of years? His reply, if you are the Messiah, tell us. Jesus answered, I tell you, if I tell you, you will not believe me. This is true. They would not have believed him. They were not looking for truth. They were looking for a way to prove him guilty. Verse 68, and if I ask you, you would not answer. That's true also. If they said, do you think he's the Messiah? They would have been silent. They're not going to make a commitment. And then he gives an answer in verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. That's a dangerous statement that he just made because he is speaking the truth. Who is the Son of Man? It's the term that Jesus most often used of himself. And this comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. We've referred to this many times. But the audience, religious leaders, understand that this refers to Messiah. They know this. Commonly accepted. In my vision at night, Daniel said, this is like uh, sixth century before Christ. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. There was something about the, this person, this vision, that was human, because he was like a Son of Man. And he was coming with the clouds. And they've been waiting for him coming for hundreds of years. 
And of course, we know that he did come in the first century, and we know that he is coming again. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, which is a reference to God the Father, and was led into his presence. Next slide. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Now, he is not just a man. All authority has been given to him. It's the same as the Great Commission authority in Matthew 28. And everyone worshipped him. And that, the only way we could do this is if it's God. Only acceptable worship would be for God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He's going to have a kingdom. It's going to be eternal, and he's going to be a king as well. That's a lot of information. But Jesus said, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated so this person of Daniel 7 is going to be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. That's a pretty high position, the right hand. Psalm 110, verse 1. We looked at this a few weeks back. The Lord says to my Lord, that's Yahweh says to my Lord, David's Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that is the position at God's right hand. And his audience understands this is a reference to Messiah. Second question, verse 70. They all ask, are you then the son of God? They think this will be a clincher. He's going to say he's the son of God. That's going to prove that he's guilty. They just need to trap him into admitting that he is the Son of God. The reply, he replied, you say that I am. Uh, this is not a question. It's, not, it's, it's, an aff it's an affirmative response on the part of Jesus. It's like saying, you have said rightly. You have said correctly. And then the verdict, verse 71, they said to him, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips they don't even have to vote. He's guilty. He's confessed to his crime. The crime is blasphemy. He said he was God's son. He said he was the son of God. He is guilty. Now, it's going to be really interesting because next week we're going to see the switch they have to make. They're going to have to change what they just concluded to make it fit with the Roman civil trial. So here's a lesson for us. After I made it, I thought about it. it's a little bit complicated, but I hope you find something helpful in it. There is a danger when political expediency seeks to use the Bible to influence spiritual truth or to influence reality. When people misuse the Bible because of political expediency, do you remember? It was Caiaphas who said it's better for one man to die for the nation because he's thinking about how this is all going to work out practically. Here's the situation. In the first century, we see Jesus come on the scene as a fresh new leader. He has a new voice. He is very popular, and he has challenged the status quo in Jerusalem. The temple, the temple treasury, was controlled by the high priest. 
And they made oodles of money at the temple. And Jesus came in and he disrupted it and he threw out the money changers and the merchants who were selling in the temple court. That's a problem. Jesus um, challenged the Pharisees who were self-righteous rule keepers and he called them hypocrites. And that was a problem. Jesus' presence is a major threat to the religious professionals in Jerusalem. Now there's another problem that the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders had to face. You see, they're under the authority of the Roman government. The Roman government doesn't care about their religion. They care about getting things done. They, they care about thinking, keeping the peace at all costs. And so the Jewish religious leaders have to navigate under Roman authority, and so they begin to pick what is politically expedient for them. And it is politically expedient for the Jewish leaders to have Jesus removed from the scene by crucifixion. So these so-called men of God use Scripture to prove that Jesus is guilty. Sometimes people get politics and Scripture confused with God's purposes. And I am not going to go there very much further. I'm just going to say when you get involved in political causes, make sure you humbly represent Jesus and what Scripture teaches don't get confused about right things and right ideas and use a scripture verse that has nothing to do with it. And sometimes I see followers of Christ get so messed up in their attitudes and with anger about political issues, and I don't think they represent Jesus well. Okay, so today we're going to celebrate communion as we close our service. And it was Jesus who instituted our communion at his last Passover, he inaugurated a new covenant. The new covenant was made when Jesus was crucified on the cross. And then it became a reality. The disciples give him some credit. He was talking about things they didn't have a clue about when he said, this is a, a new covenant in my blood. Well, what's that going to mean? But when he's dead, it's going to make a lot of sense. Jesus died on the cross, and he paid for our sins. It was his life for our life. We deserve death. We have all sinned. Uh, the consequences for our sin is spiritual death or hell. We all deserve that, but it was because of God's love, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this, yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place. And that's such a big deal. I, we're going to spend the rest of our lives understanding the meaning and significance of that. But he did it because of his love for us. I don't deserve that. And it brought forgiveness. It brought eternal life. It brought a new relationship with God, citizenship in heaven, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We became children of God, and we became members of the body of Christ, and that's why we're here today. And we are called to remember what Jesus did for us. 
We are, we are called to remember the gospel and to live under it and to live, live it out. We are, we are called to remember what he did. We are called to humble ourselves and to repent when we need to. We need to turn to God. We need to walk with God. And, and, and that means that when we sin, we need to confess our sins and to be cleansed. So today we're going to take the bread and the cup, and we, we have a simple way of doing communion at the bridge. Um, we're going to have uh, some people come up and, and take the, uh, the communion, and um, we have bread and juice, and, and the bread is a, is a symbol, it's a reminder, it's a picture of Jesus' body. He came to the earth. He is God, but he took on flesh, and he gave himself. He died for us. And the cup is a symbol. It's a reminder. We are to remember his blood was shed for us. It paid for the penalty of our sin. Our penalty was death, but he took our death so we could have life. And we are to remember that. You know what? It should humble us, and it puts us all in the same place. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. And we get to know Jesus because he saved us. And that's the church, the body of Christ. So let's uh, bow in prayer. And uh, the Bible says that we should examine our lives before we take part in this. And so um, we should just humble ourselves before God. So do that right now. Ask God to search your heart if there's anything that's unpleasing to him, an action, an attitude something that you said. You need to make it right with someone. Just be honest with God. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. And we as a church have this opportunity right now to be forgiven and to have the whole body forgiven and cleansed and purified and totally right with God. That's a good place to be. Just be honest with Him. And so, God, we want to thank you um, for Jesus Christ. Thank you for His life, His sacrifice. Thank you for His instruction, all that He taught us. God, may we follow Him faithfully. May we take him seriously. May we be humble before him. And so we thank you for the bread that represents his body. And thank you for uh, the cup that represents his blood. Lord, may we never forget, may we keep the cross central in our lives to who we are and to what we do. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. So those who are going to serve, if you would just come up. And when you, you are ready, just uh, come forward. You can get the bread and the cup, and then just walk back to your chair, and you can uh, take it whenever you are ready.